Hey, it's Matt Bowles. If you want to hang out with me in person, I'm going to be at the Latino Travel Fest in Elizabeth, New Jersey, May 31st to June 2nd. And I've got a 15% discount for you to join me. Just go to themaverickshow.com slash Latino. That's L-A-T-I-N-O. There you're going to see your 15% discounted ticket. There are going to be multiple guests from The Maverick Show attending, so you'll be able to hang out with all of us in person. You do not need to be Latino in order to attend Everyone is welcome. Again, get your discounted ticket at themaverickshow.com slash Latino. And as soon as you do, send me a DM on Instagram at Matt Bowles Maverick. Let me know that you're coming so that we can make plans to link up in person. And now here's a clip of what's coming up on today's episode. He was like six foot six, tight ponytail, just like scary, like, you know, like a wrinkled face, just a scary guy. And he sat me in a locked room and basically came in, hit record on a tape recorder, asked me a few questions in this super scary way, and then like stopped the tape recorder, left for about 45 minutes. And it's, it's this room that's like straight out of law and order, like a silver table, two locked doors with a, like a, you know, video camera in the upper corner. So he'd leave for 45 minutes. He came back, put me in handcuffs, put me in a locked van. They drove me to immigration prison. Interesting real estate investors, entrepreneurs, and world travelers, and learn the strategies and tactics they use to succeed. And now, here's your host, Matt Bowles. Hey, everybody, it's Matt Bowles. Welcome to the Maverick Show. My guest today is Travis King. He is a full time digital nomad who specializes in community building within the remote work movement, cultivating global perspectives and improving location-independent company culture, as well as large and small group facilitation and team building. After completing his master's degree in nonprofit management at Marquette University, Travis set out for a solo travel adventure that turned into four years of working and volunteering across four continents. His solo travels then turned into community travel when he landed a role as a program leader for the international work travel company Remote Year, where he led a diverse group of 70 adults around the world for a year, helping them bond as a community, become more culturally aware, and grow both professionally and personally. Travis was then promoted to the role of Director of Community Development for the entire company, where he managed a community of over 2,500 digital nomads, developed new products to bring the community together, and created events to foster bonding, growth, and learning both virtually and in person. Travis is also a travel blogger, a singer-songwriter, and after spending time in over 50 countries, he is now about to release his travel memoir entitled Not That Anyone Asked, a travel memoir about sex, drugs, love, and finding purpose. Travis, welcome to the show. Woo, what an intro, man. I'm sitting back like, that guy sounds pretty interesting. That's pretty cool. That's, a, that's awesome, man. 
Man, I am so excited to have you here. I knew that you were working on the memoir, and as soon as it was ready to drop, I wanted to get you on the show right away. So super stoked to have you here. We should just set the context at the beginning. We're not actually in the same place today, unfortunately. I am recording this from Washington, D.C., and where are you today? I'm in Mexico City, house-sitting actually for, for my good friend and co-worker, Jason Piercilla, who you know as well. But yeah, Mexico City, man, that's, that's been home for the last year, more or less. And we're about to make a move to the beach to settle in Puerto Escondido. I love that. Well, you and I have known each other now for almost four years, and we have hung out on a number of different continents together. We know each other through the Remote Year Network, which is how we've initially met, and have hung out in all sorts of epic places. The last time we hung out, I want to say, was in Bali towards the end of 2019. Yep. Yep. It was like October, November or something like that. Yeah. Cause we did Halloween together in Bali and we saw some, who did we see? We, there was like an amazing hip hop show in Bali. Yeah. Well, you, so you and I overlapped for like a month. And as soon as I got there, I staked out the hip hop nights and I put a message out to the group and said, there's a hip hop night here. There's a hip hop show here. You know, who wants to roll? And your hand was the first one to go up. And you and I have always bonded over our love for hip hop music. But we've also had a number of other adventures. I remember we had an absolutely ridiculously epic dinner in Valencia, Spain. And we've just been on so many continents together. I think Mexico City, where, where I am now, is where we first you know, got to know each other pretty well and, and kicked it a lot here. And then yeah, Bali. Bali was such a fun month, man. I, I like when I when I think of you now, I picture us at like family dinner together in Bali. Somewhere at the, you know, at the villas, just hanging out or at a show somewhere. Super fun. What a, what a month. Yeah, so amazing. Well, let's go back right now. I want to start off and just ask you a little bit about your upbringing. Where did you grow up? And as you were coming up, where did your interest in travel develop? And also, how did your social and political consciousness develop? Because I know that's also been a really important part of your life and who you are as well. For sure. So... I was born in Minnesota, although I moved when I was like two, so I don't really claim it. I don't, I don't have any memories, but we ended up in Milwaukee, Wisconsin. So that's where I really, you know, call home and where I grew up. And, you know, just like my parents are both educators. I had sort of that classic suburban, we had like a little, you know, one-story cottage house in the suburbs of, of the North Shore of Milwaukee and, you know, had a pretty good upbringing. One, one of the major things that obviously shaped my childhood, I mean, obviously, if you know me, is that my, my mom passed away back when I was 10 years old. So... That definitely, I don't know, like I've tried to write about it a little bit in the memoir of thinking about how, how that affected me. It definitely made me realize there's no sort of like this leads to that life planning paradigm and caused me to sort of want to just live every day, you know, probably harder than I would have if I, if I didn't have to go through that difficult situation as a kid. Because, you know, I realized, you know, life's a gift and it's, it's don't take it for granted and try to make the most of it, try to live as hard and as fast and, and as free as you can. So that was definitely part of it. And, you know, like I have great memories of, of growing up in Wisconsin. It was like just, you know, the type of people that drink a cold glass of milk with dinner and soccer tournaments and playing punk rock drums in suburban basements. And that was like, you know, my childhood, it was, it was beautiful. And I, I have like a strong memory also of my dad having a complete National Geographic set in the basement. So I think part of definitely where like my travel wanderlust sort of just curiosity came from was 
laying on, you know, our rickety old bench press in the basement and flipping through those National Geographics and just seeing, you know, like photos that I couldn't really place. Like I was like, where, where is this and how does this exist in the world? Hasn't, you know, I couldn't place it in Milwaukee, right? Like I was like, this is not anything I'm, I'm used to. I don't know what this is, but I, I've had a really strong desire to want to know. And I, I had really, you know, like a strong curiosity from that young age. And then, you know, that, that was growing up. I, I left after, well, you know, I went to undergrad up in Green Bay because I played soccer at St. Omer College for, for those four years. Had a good experience there. And then I did a couple years of AmeriCorps. Did a little more traveling through AmeriCorps. I did NCCC, AmeriCorps NCCC, which is one of the branches of AmeriCorps. And it had me kind of cruising all over the East Coast. And I spent a lot of time in the Gulf in New Orleans after Hurricane Katrina had come through. So we did a lot of rebuilding projects down there. And I ended up moving full time to New Orleans. And then I, you know, I eventually went back to grad school in Milwaukee at Marquette. Like you mentioned, I got my nonprofit master's degree from Marquette. And that basically quick version of my first 28 years on the planet, I remember just like always thinking like international travel was a high priority for me, but I just kept filling my life with things that didn't allow it to be possible, you know? So at some point I kind of had to look at myself in the mirror and be like, am I just, am I just telling myself that it's something I want to do? Am I, am I just kind of like tricking myself into thinking like, yeah, I'll get to it someday. But, you know, if you keep your, if you keep your plate full with different obligations and, and you keep yourself really busy, it's, you know, like when are you going to actually get on that plane and leave and leave the country for the first time or whatever it might be. So yeah, it was like as soon basically as I finished grad school, I was, I was 28. I did two years of Marquette, got this master's degree. I was like, you know, proud of it. Like this, you know, stamp on my resume. Like I, I worked hard for it. And it was a really great program. I was super grateful to, to be a part of the Trinity Fellows program at Marquette. But as soon as it was done, I was like, I got to quit, like try to convince myself that I don't have time for this or that like, there's something else that's more important. Like, when do I get to make a choice for my life? Not for my resume, not for my career, but like for my life. And once I had that thought, I really just, I couldn't shake that thought. So I just started telling everybody I knew, like, I'm going to go travel abroad. I, like, I'm, you know, I'm going to go to South America. I'm going to be a farmer. I'm going to learn Spanish, like whatever I was telling myself at the time. But I just told everybody, like I worked at a bar at the time. And I remember just telling everybody at the bar, and, every, you know, everybody in grad school, everybody in Milwaukee that I knew. So, you know, that's like one of the tricks I try to draw out in the book. For myself, at least it works really well. If, if I tell people I'm going to do something, I kind of just feel like I have to do it. And I did it with travel. And then I also did it with writing about travel. You know, I just started telling people I was going to write a book. And then at some point I had to. You know, I was like, I've told too many people to not follow through with this and to make it a reality. So that was kind of the start of the memoir as well. It's just talking about it to the point where like, there's no turning back because you're either all talk then, or you're actually going to follow through with what you've been saying to everybody. So. Yeah, man, I, I relate to a lot of that. And you and I have a lot of that in common as well. I also have a nonprofit background. Yep, I also yep. did, you know, I did my master's degree in international peace and conflict resolution. I worked professionally in the nonprofit space for many years. And you and I also yep. have bonded over that over many years. But let me just ask you about that, Travis, before we get into the travel sure. uh, uh, part of your life. I want, I'm super interested in this all, always. When you were growing up in the United States, if you can just kind of think back, about how was your social and political consciousness raised? Because you've always, since I've known you, been a super, super conscious dude, like like down with the struggle, really conscientious uh, and supportive of, of, of different types of, of oppressed struggles of, you know, all over the place, including in the United States where you're from. And I just want to ask you that, you know, like growing up as a white kid, which, which I as well in the mm -hmm. suburbs, right? Like I'm always interested how did you become so passionate around social justice? You know, it's definitely 
multiple influences, right? Like it's a few fold answer for sure. But looking back at my childhood, I was pretty grateful that my high school had the 220 program, which basically means they bust in like a, like a certain percentage of our high school was bust in from the city of Milwaukee. Nicolay High School, where I went to, was on the North Shore, you know, a five or 10 minute drive from my house where I grew up. But some of the kids, basically all of the, the black kids or the, the vast majority of the black kids that went to my high school were bust in on the 220 program. But I was tight with all those kids. I, I had really good friends that didn't look like me through high school and, and growing up. And I think that was obviously kind of where it started is just having that like real soul to soul connection. Like we're, we're just homies, we're friends. And, you know, getting invited to those kids' birthday parties and, and vice versa and all that stuff all through high school, playing on the same sports teams. I played soccer all four years of high school and, and three years in college and tore my ACL for the second time. A lot of that was really grounding and just me not having to convince myself later on in life that I should support Black Lives Matter movement and all these other things. Like I've felt that way just because they were like people that I got on with super well and were my friends, you know, in high school. So although we lived in different communities and they had to, you know, be a part of this 220 program where they got bust in. But um, yeah, so that was kind of the start. And then another huge influence in my life was the summer camp I grew up going to and then ultimately working at. It was called Camp Minicani. It was basically the first thing that I knew I was good at professionally was, you know, hanging out with kids. I think I have, you know, sort of like the energy and and uh, personality that just kind of, I can, I can get down with kids of any age and, and, you know, talk to them like little human beings like they are and and have a really good time working with children. So I've done that in a lot of different environments. I basically did that for most of my professional life until leaving to travel. And that was just because it was the first thing I knew I was really good at because of the summer camp, right? So when I got out of undergrad at age of 22, I wasn't quite sure what to do. I looked around at like, I remember Googling actually, like from my desktop computer back then, like youth jobs in Madison, Wisconsin, because I moved to Madison, Wisconsin, just to be around a lot of my good friends from high school. And so that led me to the AmeriCorps website. I didn't even know what AmeriCorps was at that point. And for anybody listening that doesn't know, it's basically national service, but without a gun, with a shovel, not a gun sort of thing is one of their expressions. And I got into a program called PASS, Partners for After School Success. I ended up working in a neighborhood at a neighborhood center called Veracourt that was kind of like the only predominantly black neighborhood in Madison, Wisconsin. Madison, Wisconsin's not, you know, super, super diverse like like Milwaukee might be. But Madison obviously has its, its you know, share of people of different colors and, and shades and whatnot. But this neighborhood center I worked at Veracourt was predominantly black kids. I loved that job. I loved like going there every day and hanging out with those kids. And it just sort of like, you know, I, there's a point where I almost took a full-time job there. And I, I see this other version of my life where like, I'm just still working there. I really loved that neighborhood center. And I really loved, you know, hanging out with those kids every day and trying to just do what I could to be a good role model for them, be a good influence in their lives and, and help them to have a better future. So that was kind of the start. Those two things, I guess, would be like the main ways I, I started into just not having to even question it going forward. You know, it's like, it's, it's, it's always felt obvious to me, I guess. Yeah, that's awesome, man. Okay, so then you decided to make this move and travel as soon as you finished your master's degree. Yeah. Can you talk about what that trip was initially intended to be? When you designed it and you set off on it, what were you envisioning you were going to go and do? What was the initial concept? <laughs> Well, I remember like Googling worldwide workers on organic farms, the program called Wolf. So I, I told a lot of my friends, like, I'm going to go farming in, in Colombia and South America, and I'm going to learn Spanish. And, you know, that was sort of like this romanticized version I had of myself traveling. I think when it comes down to it, and for anybody that's gone traveling, you probably felt this for once you, once you start, it just sort of, it has like a natural energy to it. And it's like the dominoes, like one domino tapping the next is kind of one, you know, one of the expressions I used throughout the memoir. Because it really felt that way. It felt like I just kind of left it in the universe's hands and it started on its own 
energy and its, its own life, this, this trip that I was on. But I really, you know, like I was mentioning earlier, I just started telling people I was going to go because I wanted to make myself go. I wanted to, I wanted to not be all talk anymore about my desires to see other countries and, and to, to broaden my, you know, horizons and, and get a little more global perspective and understand the world better. I'd done a lot of traveling in the U.S., you know, but at some point it just felt like I was, I was kidding myself when I kept saying I wanted to travel and I, and I hadn't. So I started like that, you know, and I remember getting a free flight from Spirit Airlines. Thank you, Spirit Airlines. Not, not the best airline, but, you know, they hooked it up this one time when they, they delayed me on a flight to New York or something, and they hooked it up with two free round trips to anywhere I wanted to go. So I just checked the farthest place that they flew. It was Aruba. I flew into Aruba at the time. And, you know, I was, I was conceiving of the whole trip, sort of, the farming, the learning Spanish, the, you know, meeting interesting characters I couldn't yet picture, all of those aspects. I, I was conceiving of it as, like, uh, extended grad school. You know, I'd done two years of grad school, and I, and I just wanted to keep learning and keep kind of growing, and I knew that I knew that the world would force me to do that even more so than institutionalized education can. For me, like one thing that I've learned that I just feel very strongly about, you know, I'm 36 years old. One thing I feel like that is just true for me is that learning is experiential. You, you can't really know what love is reading a book about love. You have to get your heart broken and you can't, you can't know what Mexico is by reading a book about Mexico. You have to go to Mexico and live here and meet the people and, and taste the food and be a part of the culture. So that was kind of part of my impetus for like wanting to just go. It's like, I, I want to just keep learning and keep growing and push myself to be uncomfortable and like see what that uncomfort does to me. Like see how it helps me evolve as a human. And I remember being really worried about my nonprofit career actually at that time too, of thinking like, well, what are people going to say if I haven't been working for six months or however long this trip's going to be? I was like, I think I'm going to improve myself. And if somebody doesn't want to hire somebody that went out on a trip to try to improve them, themselves, like that's probably not somebody I want to work for. So yeah, it was, it was a lot of different things, but it was definitely just, this like, I got to do it because I've been thinking to myself, I want to see more of the world for years now. So I got to just do it. And ultimately, I think it'll grow me in a way that I'll be really happy with looking back. Like I'll, I'll evolve in a positive direction. And what are some of your reflections now when you think back about the impact of that trip and you think about yourself starting off on that trip? When you look back at Travis King setting off on that trip and then Travis King, after four years of international travel and experiences, what are some of the personal growth reflections and also even just building on that social and political consciousness traveling around the world and stuff like that? I'd be really interested in your reflections on how you grew in that department as well. Yeah. I mean, it was like just one of the things I realized that sort of like data about how big of a trip it was for me is that first trip was about five months, but in the memoir I wrote, it's the first quarter of the book. You know, it's it's the whole first continent. I have the book broken up into four different continents. And the whole first continent, which is about 25% of the book, is just that first four and a half, almost five months in South America. So it was massive for me. You know, it was like every day I felt myself like adjusting to it. And every day I felt myself, you know, striving, especially early on, like striving to make connections and to like figure out to find my footing. I remember the first day I got to Aruba and there was an airport security guard after I, you know, I got my bag and I got, I remember buying like a bottle of whiskey at duty free just so I was like, this will help my nerves if I'm feeling like crazy anxious tonight. Cause I'm like, just like on this trip, don't know anybody in Aruba, don't know what I'm doing. And the security guard looked at me, he's like, you look lost, man. And I was like, uh, yeah, you know, like, I just was like, yes, I, I thought I was keeping that shit internal, but like maybe not. So Man, I, I do have like very visceral memories of just feeling like so nervous. So I guess just to pause real quick on the story and just to say to anybody listening, like if you haven't traveled and you feel nervous about it, it's so normal to feel nervous about it. And like that's something that I think that people who have traveled extensively, like myself or Matt now, aren't 
so quick to say because it doesn't sound that cool, I guess, to be like, oh, I was scared. I was scared when I when I started, you know, but I was. And so I think that was like I, in writing the book, I was just trying to be so honest and like tap back into the way I felt about, you know, those moments early on in the book and early on in my, in my journey. And I was scared. I was so nervous. And that first part of Aruba, actually, what ended up happening is this like woman who probably felt my nervousness and felt my like indecision. I didn't know what to do. I hadn't booked a hotel. I didn't know how I was even getting from the airport to where I was staying. I didn't even know where I was staying. Right. And she looked at me and was like, we just started chatting on a bench. And eventually she, she, I think just like realized I was like a good and like lost person. And and she offered me a spare room in her, in her apartment. And she was a teacher in Aruba from Germany, but she was there teaching kids in Aruba and was like, yeah, I have a spare bedroom. If you just want to stay, like I have to go teach in the days, but you can come and go as you please. And I can just give you a spare key. And so that was also like my first big moment of travel serendipity. Like had I booked a hotel or something or a hostel, I wouldn't have met Anne and I wouldn't have stayed at her place for a week and had that week in Aruba with her. So that was like a really cool learning early on. of just like maybe leave some white spaces in the script and then see what fills them because it'll probably be really cool. Yeah, man. And then so, all right, let's get into some of these stories. The uh, the first part of the book title is called Drugs. So <laughs> I'm, I'm, I'm guessing that some of that had to do with your time in Colombia, but I want you to share a little bit about the drug-laden adventures. Oh, man, there were a plenty in that first few months, for sure. Like in that, that first big trip to South America. When I got to Colombia, you know, I didn't fall into the farming scene. Like I fell into the hostel scene and I just started meeting other travelers. I started, you know, just getting really deep into like the party hostel scene. I was 28 at the time. I was having a great time. And I met a really good mate, Brian, who was, you know, a good eight years younger than me from Ireland. And he's just, you know, one of those guys that can sleep through anything is like the best version of himself when he's blacked out drunk and doesn't even remember what happened. Like he's just one of those like really hilarious Irish guys like travel brother for life for me. And so we, he and I, he was like the beginning of my first travel family. We eventually caught like, you know, six other people. And we were a crew of eight that spent most of that first four months together going through South America. But it was just him and I at the beginning. And we ended up in a small town called Salento. It's famous for having the world's tallest palm trees. So I remember we like went there for that reason. And as soon as we checked into the hostel we were staying at, Somebody told us that that hostel did like twice weekly ayahuasca rituals. So we were like, ah, oh, that's weird. We did an ayahuasca ritual. That wasn't actually that like crazy or intense for me. It was super interesting. And I, and I write about it in the memoir just because it was such a interesting story and memory. But I didn't like personally have like the experience with ayahuasca that you can hear as possible of, you know, like seeing what your life is meant to be and all that stuff. So I, I didn't really have that. But I, I did meet this one character who said, if you keep going south, further south in Colombia and you get to San Agustin, there is a guy there a little baseball cap on. His name is Umberto. And he's a little like plump man. He'll be in the main town square. Most most towns in Latin America have like a town square, right? Like in Mexico, they're called Zocalos. But in, in Colombia, he was like, in the small town, there's one town square. Go there, try to find this guy. And he, he'll do like a special tour. He'll ask you for a horse tour. Then you ask him special tour. The special tour was making your own cocaine from scratch. So when we met this guy in Salento, he told us about this. We were like, okay, we have to try to do that. So I'm still with Brian at this point. And Brian and I go down, we make another, one of my best travel friends too, is this girl named Marla. We've connected like all over the world since then, but we met her at the hostel. So she got in on this crazy adventure and this other Canadian guy, honestly, don't even remember his name. He's just, you know, this one day with me on this travel adventure, but me, Brian, Marlo, and this Canadian. So we go to the town square, we, we wait, we wait like an hour. And at some point we're like 10 more minutes and we'll give up. And that's when somebody was like horse tour. And we were like, yeah, or special, do you do a special tour? And the, and the guy was like, Oh, yes. And he like showed us a binder. He flipped through the binder. It's like all these, you know, 
Gren goes out on horses and the last few pages are like people in his house, like cooking this mysterious stuff over like a four top burner, like just in like a normal kitchen in Columbia. We're like, okay, we got to figure out what this is about. So basically long story short, we meet him at a bar. He drives us out of the city lights into the dark hills of like the Colombian countryside from San Augustine, which isn't even a big city. So like, we're like in the middle of just like, you know, rolling hills and, you know, forest at this point. We're like, this is not good. Like <laughs> this is, this could be end up bad, but we finally do end up at his house. He's still playing, you know, the role of guide slash, you know, like drug expert. We walk through. So I remember his like kid was eating cereal at the table. Like I've all these details in my mind. So that I remember, and like we go into the garage and he's got his assistant there. They have these four huge yellow basins full of coca leaves and all these mysterious liquids. And he told us he was like one of Pablo Escobar's top scientists in, in like the prime of Pablo's reign. And I'm just remembering like, this is so like, wh- what is happening in my life? Like, this is so, I was in grad school like three months ago. Like what is going on, you know? And uh, so we, yeah, we went through the whole process, but at the end he like cut us up lines and we each did like a little line of blow. And like, I remember watching Brian do it first and I could see like the hair on his neck stand up and he like came up from the table, like eyes huge. And I don't remember how we got home. We like floated home from this guy's house. I, th- I remember like negotiating too with him in the, in the square before it all started. And I think we paid like $70 each. And like at the end we like, he like gave us each a line of cocaine and then like packed this like fat bag full of it. And like in the U S like even just a bag of cocaine without the experience of making it would have cost like 10 times more, you know? And I was like, this is crazy. Like Colombia is just such a, wildly wonderful interesting country and I, I remember him being like the only rule is you can't take a photo of anybody's face so like we have photos of that night but we're all like from the neck down like you know but you can see i'm like in a green bay packers t-shirt it's like a thousand percent me you know it's like you know, you know we have those photos and but i remember him saying that and me thinking like there are no rules in this country besides no faces in your photos you know wow like what what a funny travel night that's amazing, man. Wow. And so then now there's another story I wanted to ask you about that I have actually never heard this story about when you were in Australia. Yeah. Wow. And I, I don't even want to say anymore. I just want to ask you to tell it because I've never heard this story before. So I'm super curious about uh, about how this went down. Yeah. It, I mean, it was super intense and scary as it happened. But yeah, the the lead up is that I did a year on a work visa and I ended up in Melbourne for six months working at a cafe, had a great time. And then I ended up doing a bit of traveling and I found myself in Byron Bay. So anybody, you know, that's traveled Australia down the East Coast there or who is from Australia, you'll know Byron Bay well. It's the easternmost point. But yeah, it juts out there, um, Cape Byron, and it's the furthest east point and there's a colony of dolphins that live there so my my job in byron was actually to be a kayak guide where i would take people out and find these dolphins every day it was like one of those jobs where like most days somebody would like cry and say this is the best day of their life and so like having a job where you get to facilitate that i just was so in love with the job and i also ran all the fun events at the party hostel that i was staying at i worked at a cafe that i loved working at where really famous musicians like well they're famous now but like ziggy alberts kyle leinhart garrett cato those guys were like weekly performers at this cafe that i got to work at so all that to say i had like three of my favorite jobs i've ever had in my life they're literally probably still just the top three favorite jobs i've ever had in my life and i had them all in the same town in australia so i got to the end of my year visa i went home i tried to repair a long-term relationship with a girl in, in madison wisconsin it didn't work out 
And I just was sad like that, that that this relationship didn't work out. So I remember emailing all my bosses that night that it was finally sort of over. And they were all like, hey, man, like, yeah, we miss you. Just come back. And like, if you come back on a tourist visa, we'll just figure it out. We'll pay you cash, like just whatever you need to do. But like, we miss having you here. Come back. So booked a flight for like the next day. I was back in Australia, like 24 hours later, back, you know, kayaking with dolphins and, you know, playing guitar and like hosting open mics and like listening to great music, just a really great life. But at that point, like, the three jobs I had were all illegal according to Australia. Cause I was on a tourist visa. I was on a work visa and I ended up extending that tourist visa to, to another three months. And somewhere about five months into that six months of tourist visa, I went and visited one of my best friends, Patrick Kolb in Asia. He was finishing like a year long trip all over backpacking throughout Asia. So we met up in Kuala Lumpur. We did like the Thai islands, the, the, the Gulf side of, of Thai. So Kofanyang and Koh Samui, we did Bangkok. We just like partied for a week. I got to catch up with one of my best boys. And on the way back into Australia, I had like gotten the advice from everybody I knew in Australia, like, yo, delete everything out of your phone, delete everything out of your Facebook. The Australian immigration is not fucking around. Like they are serious about this. So I deleted everything, everything, everything. And the plane landed, the plane touched down. I remember coming off like airplane mode and checking just to be like, just in case somebody texted me on the flight and somebody had, somebody was like, Hey, do you want to take my paddle this week? Like one of the other kayak guides. And I said, oof, good thing I cut this, deleted it. I go through immigration, and as soon as the lady scanned my passport, you know, I'm, tr- I'm just like listening to a podcast, trying to play it cool in immigration line, like this isn't stressful or whatever, even though I know I'm breaking the terms of my visa. And she scans my passport, and she's like, you need to talk to her immediately, hands my passport behind her. And it's this other, even scarier lady. And she goes, I need to confiscate your phone. It's a matter of national security. And I was like, and I like always remember that line, you know, it just was like, felt like out of a movie and like time stopped and like my ears rang. And I pulled my phone out of my pocket and I looked at the screen and she said it again. Like, as I'm looking at the screen, she says, I need your phone. It's a matter of national security. You can't touch it. And on my, on my lock screen, there was two new texts. One was from a friend that, and it just said, Hey, what's the name of that kayak company you work for? It's like, Oh no. And then the other one was my boss at the cafe, this guy Moses, who I love. And Moses was like, Hey, Trev, paychecks came in early this week. You can come pick them up whenever you want. So like just two of the most incriminating texts in the picture on my phone. And so I, but then I like have to hand my phone to this lady and she takes it and she's like, you know, she shakes her head like, "Uh Oh, you're in trouble, bro. You know? And like, Basically, then she passed me off to like an even scarier human. There's this guy, I, I call him uh, Immigration Dundee in the book, because he was like six foot six, tight ponytail, just like scary, like, you know, like a wrinkled face, just a scary guy. And he sat me in a locked room and basically came in, hit, hit record on a tape recorder, asked me a few questions in this super scary way, and then like stopped the tape recorder, left for about 45 minutes. And it's, it's this room that's like straight out of law and order, like a silver table, two, two locked you know, doors with a, like a, you know, video camera in the upper corner. So he'd leave for 45 minutes. He came back, would ask me another, you know, 15 minutes of scary questions, leave again. At some point he brought in like a text history that he found on my phone with a girl that I'd seen like five months earlier when I first returned to Byron. And a lot of my texts with her were like trying to not hang out. And I was using work as an excuse, but it was like, I have to work. I have to be on the water, whatever. He was like, explain this. And I was like, I don't know, you know, whatever, you know, so I was trying to play it cool with him. Like, you know, let's, uh, you know, let's, I'm just trying to keep up the charade that like I wasn't working and I was trying to act like it was all good. And he left, you know, he paused the recorder again, leaves the room, comes back. And he had like, he, he had found the comments about me being on the water. There's only two kayak companies in Australia. So he found their Facebook pages and he found Go See Kayak where I worked. 
and was like flipping through a bunch of pictures of me in a staff rash guard with happy tourists from like two weeks before. He's like, explain this. And I was like, all right, bro. You're like, you're pretty good at your job, you detective or whatever. So yeah, he came back the next time with a really, you know, intense document, like the terms of your visa, you broke the terms of your visa, your visa has been revoked, blah, 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 put me in handcuffs, put me in a locked van. They drove me to immigration prison. I spent two days in immigration prison. I was with these three guys that were from, one was Kurdish, from Iraq, he was Kurdish. The other one was Afghani. And the other one was from Iran. They'd all have visa issues. And like on the first day, I remember the one, the big scary Kurdish guy was like, I hear you get in trouble for playing guitar. Like, can, can you play us guitar? I, ha- I have a guitar in my, in my in our room. And these are my roommates, right? So he like goes to the closet. And he gives me the acoustic guitar. I have like this really vivid memory of playing pumped up kicks, sitting on the edge of my bed for these three guys. And they were all like, you know, hands, like chin in their hands, like, the most attentive audience I've ever played guitar for. So I just like loved these guys right away. And the last day before I was leaving, I finally was like, well, how long have all you guys been here? Like, what's your story? And they'd all been there for over a year. And they were just like, yeah, we wait for our, like the problem with our visa to be fixed. And I was like, but like for two years, like how long is this going to take? And they were like, we don't know, but like at least the food here is good, you know? So it totally, totally like readjusted my perspective on how bad what just happened to me was I, I was there for two days. And I, I think in that situation, Australia basically blames the airline. So they put me on the exact same AirAsia flight back to Kuala Lumpur that I'd flown in on, you know, so I just had two days to wait in this prison. Then I went back to Asia. And when I showed up in Asia, I was just a backpacker, right? Like I was just like my life kind of readjusted quickly. Once I got word from all my bosses that I didn't like fuck up their businesses and they were all like not worried about it. They were like, you know, we're just, you know, hope you're okay. Like, don't worry. Once I'd gotten those messages from my bosses, I was like, okay, now I'm just like, a dude in Asia, like backpacking around like everybody else here that's traveling. Wow. But those guys like, and the guy that the big Kurdish guy, when I was leaving, he gave me like a little blue origami swan that he'd folded. He was like, Hey, just like, you are free again. Like this bird, like I'm you know, about to go to the, air, the airport to, to leave. He's like, hey, just like, take this and remember that you are free like this bird. And you have three friends now that are still birds trapped in a cage here in this prison. And we wish the best for you and like have, you know, have their best trip. And like, you know, tears just were falling out of my face. And I hope that guy knows how much of an impact he had on me. But it just, he just changed like my perspective on any time. I think something bad happened to me in life. It's so easy to feel like the world is against you or something. But that guy had like the time and energy to think of like making my trip back to the airport and my, and my next trip even better even though he was stuck there for who knows how long he might, he might still be there. I don't know. Like, but I always like those guys passed through my mind all the time. Basically those, those three guys, like I, I loved their energy and just like the way that they were like, we had a little brotherhood in our little four person jail cell and they were the best dudes. They gave me this little origami swan on my way out. And they're like, don't forget your brothers here that are trapped like a bird in a cage when you go get to be a free bird again. It was so cool. That's absolutely amazing. And how incredible that there was a guitar in there that you were able to play. When I think of you, one of the images that I have of you is you playing guitar and a whole bunch of people sitting around you at either a campfire or an open mic night or something like that. And you're always able to move whatever the crowd is, you know, that, that's there with you. And that's just unbelievable that there was a guitar in that setting. Man, that's incredible. But can you talk a little bit about that now in terms of, what does being a singer, songwriter, guitar player mean to you in general? And I know you're always looking for open mic nights when you're traveling and you're doing a lot of that. Can you talk about why and what that means to you? Yeah, I've always had like a deep, deep love for music. And, you know, I remember as a kid, my dad setting a 15 minute uh, microwave alarm for me to sit in front of the piano and just like do something on the piano, like practice your lessons, whatever. 
And I was, you know, the most hyperactive little, little guy ever. And those 15 minutes were exactly as long as 15 minutes can be, you know, like just watching the microwave, practicing my piano. But my dad, like, you know, for any parents out there listening, like, do that for your kid. You know, I remember being like bitter towards my dad, like, man, I got to do this again. But it was every day, Monday through Friday, play 15 minutes of piano. But it gave me this really solid foundation for music. And then, you know, I, I dabbled a little guitar. I got a drum set when I turned 14 and became a pretty good drummer. That was kind of the first instrument that I really got into. And I played in a punk rock band called Will Denied for most of my high school years. And we even had like a little five song EP. And, you know, I had earrings at that point. I was like, you know, a little, like a punk rock guy also happened to play on the soccer team. Like I was, I was confused in high school apparently, but, um, you know, looking back, it feels kind of funny. Like I was just all over the map. Then, you know, I eventually, I really liked to sing. So I, I was like, you know, I, I got to learn an instrument that can allow me that like chance to sing. And like, not everybody can be Phil Collins, you know? So I started practicing. I went back a little bit to the guitar and started playing. This also obviously like coincides with all my summer camp days, all those summers, you know, with kids in camp, like having an opening campfire and a closing campfire and going actually out into to nature to camp. It's just so nice to be able to break out a guitar and, and play a couple songs for people. So that's really where I started getting the confidence up around guitar because, you know, we had a pretty big camp. Like if you played a song at a closing campfire, you'd be playing in front of 100 plus people and it felt magic. You know, they would stand up and give you, give you a standing ovation at the end of one okay acoustic song. So it really gave me that like uh, motivation to keep going with music. And, you know, like I was like, I'm not an incredible guitar player or an incredible singer, but I do love it. And I think that that comes through when, when you really do love something you do, people can tell. So I, like my ideal thing with music is to host open mic nights and to try to bring other people into that space and into that feeling of like, Hey, we're going to clap for you and go crazy. No matter what you do. Like if you have one song that you play while you sit at the, the foot of your bed and you only played it to yourself, play it for us. And I promise you will clap, you know? So like when I, when I host an open mic in Australia and, I hosted one here in Mexico City for just a little bit, but that's always the kind of vibe that I try to bring around music because it really is for sharing. It's really, it's, you know, music is to be connected by and, and, and it's one of those languages that crosses all borders. And I, yeah, I just, I really love the feeling of letting go and just performing and being vulnerable. And I also love to try to create a space for other people to do that as well. Would you be willing to play a song for the Maverick Show audience tonight? Yeah, man. You know, I got my guitar with me. I can always count on you for that, brother. So that would be amazing. You know, if somebody, if somebody starts a campfire, I'm, I'm ready. I'm, I'm there for it. Let's do a song, man. This has probably been one of my go-to covers for at least the whole time I've been traveling, like at least at least eight years or so, maybe more. And I know you're a hip-hop guy, so hopefully this fits in with the, with the Maverick Show audience uh, being a hip-hop cover, but it's a classic. To get down good enough, baby got you moving all over town. So good that you don't play around, cover much ground. Game by the East side and West side, pushing fat rides, it's no surprise. Baby, she's a perfect team. Wanna get in? Can I get down so I can? I like the way you work, no dignity. Got to bag it, bag it up. I like the way you work, no dignity. Got to bag it, bag it. Said I like the way you work it, no dignity. I'm about to bag it and bag it up. She's got class and style, street knowledge by the mile. Well, shorty never acts wild. She keep a low key and a profile. 
But strictly business is a no. Let me tell you how it goes. With herbs, the white spins the verb. Love as it comes, so freak what you heard. Well, help me with the fatness. You don't even know what the half is. And she's got to pay to play. Shorty getting down in the Brooklyn train. Baby, in time, you're blowing my mind. Maybe I can get you in my ride. I like the way you work it. No diggity, bag it and bag it up. Said I like the way you work it. No diggity, bag it and bag it up. Said I like the way you work it. No diggity, I'm about to bag it and bag it up. Should we do a little mashup? We'll, we'll skip the crowd participation part. Yo, hey, yo, hey, yo, hey, yo. That girl looks good. Hey, yo, hey, yo, hey, yo, hey, yo. Play on the player, hey yo, hey yo, hey yo, hey yo. Hey yo, hey yo, hey yo, hey yo. As I walk through the valley in the shadow of death, I take a look at myself and realize there's nothing left, cause I've been blasting and laughing so long that my mama thinks that my mind is gone. Yo, I really hate the trip, but I gotta know. You see me standing in the piece of smoke, fool. I'm that little G, little homies wanna be like saying prayers in the night under the street lights. They're standing on starlights, living in the gangsters paradise. They're standing on starlights, living in the gangsters paradise. They're standing on starlights, living in the gangsters paradise. Hey yo, hey yo, that girl looks good. Hey yo, hey yo, hey yo, play on, play on. Hey yo, hey yo, hey yo, hey yo, it's my kind of girl. Hey yo, hey yo, hey yo, hey yo. Said I like the way you work it, no dignity. Got to bag it and bag it up. Said I like the way you work it, no dignity. Got to bag it and bag it up. Said I like the way you work it, no dignity. Got to bag it and bag it up. Amazing, bro! Thank you for that, man. That was awesome. Yeah. Feels like we're we're back around a, a campfire or on the beach right. or sitting around a pool in, in 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 a villa in Bali or something like for that, sure. man. That was awesome. Well, thanks, bro. Yeah, it's you know any invitation to play, I'm I'm there for it. So I love it, and I, I like trying to create. I'm you know like I mentioned earlier, I'm we're about to make this move, my partner Marie and I to the beach in Puerto Escondido. Our plan for that is to open a co-working and a co-living. And, you know, it might take a year or so more maybe to get up off the ground. But one of the things I'm super excited to start right when I get there is an open mic night. There's not an open mic night in Puerto Escondido. So it's like my goal, maybe, maybe to start too. You know, like I just think it's a really creative town where there's a lot of artistic people and people that definitely do music. So I'm, I'm, I'm going to try to create a platform as soon as I get there for people to show up every whatever night of the week it is, Thursday or something, and, and have the stage for 10 minutes and and give it a go. That's amazing, man. So, all right. So let me now fast forward sort of to the end of your four year solo travel adventure. You ended up landing a job with remote year as a program leader on one of their very early programs. So I would love to hear yeah. about, you know, how that came about and hear the story about your in-person interview, which I hear was in an interesting place. Yeah. You know, I'd gotten forcibly removed from Australia, like we just talked about. And then the money that I'd made in Australia, which you, you can make really good money there. So I, I had like that leash basically in Asia to travel and enjoy. 
but I could see the light at the end of my travel tunnel. You know, I was like, I don't know what comes after this. There's no, there's no next plan. So I was volunteering on Workaway through different opportunities I found there, just trying to keep the adventure and the travels alive for as long as I could. But I started slowly as well, just applying to different travel gigs. And I remember I was working at a hostel in the Gili Islands called the Gili Mano Eco Hostel. And there's like one resort on the island that has Wi-Fi that will connect, right? Like it's pretty remote little island. And I go to that resort and check my Wi-Fi, you know, check my email, get on the Wi-Fi. And one time on Facebook, I got like, you know, 15th ad for a remote year that I'd seen. So I finally was like, you know, I should write these guys. And I just wrote them like a cold email. Like, hey, I'm Travis. This is my experience. Are y'all hiring anybody? Because, you know, I only had maybe $2,000 left in my name at that point and, and was trying to figure out how to angle for what was next. And that first email led to, you know, a series of emails, a series of Skype interviews. I met like both the founders, Sam and Greg, uh, on Skype interviews, like later when I was in the Philippines, like building homes through hands-on over there. I remember spending like 10 hours building concrete walls uh, after they had had a hurricane. We were doing like rebuilding work there. And then I would go to the one little cafe down the street from the volunteer organization and take these Skype interviews with Sam and Greg, try to put on my best, you know, party shirt and make my hair not look stupid and impress them and make, you know, make them think like, yeah, this is the guy we're looking for. I think in the end, they just like couldn't decide. So they were like, well, let's fly him down. And I get for them in the early days, it was really big stakes. You know, like we, the job I ended up getting was for the third program. So I was like the 10th employee of the, of the company. And if you hire somebody that's going to totally nosedive program, the, you know, if the third program didn't go well, it, it could you know, be the end of the whole dream and the whole idea, right? So I get that they were really trying to do their due diligence and vet out these, you know, future potential employees. But they ended up flying me down. So I was in Myanmar later on, you know. They bought me a flight from Yangon into Kofen Yang, which is where the first remote year group was. I think they were in month seven or eight, something like that. So they flew me down there to meet the first remote year crew, to meet the, you know, that small team they had at the time. It was like six or seven people at the time. And you know, it was basically like my, my in-person trial, my in-person interview. When I, and I get there, I meet everybody. I have like a good first day. I met Trish, I met Hannah, the first two program leaders for the first group, like got on well with them, like straight away, like they're still two of my best friends. So like, you know, it was easy connection. Love those two. Trying to win over the founders. Didn't quite know how I was doing with that, but whatever, you know, I was like, okay, I just like impress these, all the other people on the team, like make, make good friends with some of the people in the first remote year group, you know? And hanging out with Trevor Gerhardt. He's like one of the guys from the first group. And I remember him being like, you know, it's a full moon party tonight. I was like, what? Like, I just flew here for an interview. I didn't, I wasn't like trying to come to a full moon party, but it was that night that I got there. That was the full moon party. So they all get geared up. Like I remember like, un- like opening my suitcase and just pulling out like silly shirts and like, cost- wait, Travis, can you just explain what the full moon party? And by the way, first of all, actually yeah. shout out to Trevor Gerhardt. Trevor Gerhardt has gotten shout outs on a litany of Maverick show episodes yeah. so yeah. far. So big shout to Trevor. He was literally the first customer of remote year. He was the first human being off the plane on the first remote year program ever to go. So he has amazing stories and he and I have spent time in a number of countries. So great guy, but that's awesome that you connected with him there. And so explain what the full moon party is and then what was your experience? All right. So, I mean, I think the maybe the most succinct way to explain it is like for any young backpacker who's like, partying around the world it's probably like in your top three parties you want to get to right like it's, a, it's one of the most world famous parties that exists and it's on the island of Kofen Yang which is in the Gulf of Thailand in a specific beach called Hadrin um, 
And it happens on the full moon once a month. So they also do like a half moon party now. And there's a bunch of other places in Asia and other islands that do full moon parties as well. But the original is in Kofinyang on the full moon once a month. And it just, it's like, you know, a sea of people covered in neon, face paint, drinking like buckets of, you know, booze and poison and like you know like they, they have like scientific red bull over there that comes in like these little medicine vials so like people are just getting all kinds of turned up and yeah so that was like the scene like i we, we go down to the beach and i'm with like you know the 30 some people from that first remote your group as we like you know enter the scene we're all just trying to like you know turn this crazy vibe into like a fun night so i remember a bunch of the ry1 people wanted to go to this one bar on the far end of the beach was sort of famous for mushroom milkshakes. So they could take the magic mushrooms. And I'm like, okay, maybe I can like, you know, just like help out with this or like be like a sage sort of like guide type figure. But the, as soon as I started taking them, the milkshakes, I was like, I should probably not be here. Like this is his job interview in a sense. Like maybe, maybe I'll bail. <laughs> so I bail. I, I found, you know, back to music, I found these two kids playing on the street. They had like a drum at their feet. So I like, you know, gave like that musician nod of like, can I play the drum? And they were like, sure. So I, I jammed along with them. I ended up playing a couple songs on one of their guitars and like, you know, music makes fast friends. So I was like me and these two guys after playing a couple songs on the streets for like a little crew of people at the, at the full moon party. One of them was like, let's go to the reggae bar. Wink, wink. It's like, I got it. We'll go. We, we go smoke a couple of joints at this reggae bar. And you know, time is just like drifting away. Before I found these guys, I was like, I'll just have like one more beer and then go home at like midnight. So I'm like bright eyed and bushy tailed for tomorrow's, you know, second day of this like really important interview, like the most important interview of my life basically. But I meet these guys and I have these, you know, fun hours of playing music and smoking a few joints with these guys at the reggae bar. And eventually I realized it's like 4 a.m. I'm like, okay, like go to bed. Like you got to still nail this interview tomorrow. And I had this brilliant thought of like, well, don't walk the main street home because you might run into people you know. Like, why don't you walk this little sneaky path that goes along the water that ends up back at this, you know, like sort of, they had the RY1 crew staying at like this kind of resort place. So I had my own room there that they, you know, were nice enough to get me for the interview weekend. So like, I'll sneak back down this path and I end up there. And I find it, I'm sneaking back down the path. I'm like drunk, a little high. I'm like, yes, I'm going to make it home and sleep for like, you know, seven, eight hours and wake up and, and, and nail tomorrow. And as I'm walking, Trevor and a bunch of people were like at the one little bar on this path and they see me walking. I'm like sneaking by and they're like, hey, Travis. And like one of them holds up a guitar and they're like, don't you play guitar? And I was like, yeah, I do. You know? I was like, I was like, and I can't also pretend like I don't hear you or like you don't see me. I'm like 10 feet away. So then the next time I thought about what time it was, it was like 9 a.m. And it was like the sun had come up and everybody had gone except for this Russian guy named Boris who – he probably would have given me a job, but he didn't even, he wasn't even on remote year. He was just some guy. <laughs> so at, at that point I was like, oh man, I've like maybe messed this up, you know? And I, you know, had a great full moon party. What, what, a, what a wonderful time, right? But I snuck back to my room. I slept for like two hours. I woke up at 11, tried to like reemerge into the day and act normal, like act like my brain wasn't, you know, an egg flipping over and over again. And I think I managed, you know, I had like four or five hours that Sunday, just like, chatting with people, you know, hanging out with the staff more, hanging out with the first group more. Happened to be actually Thanksgiving Day that day. I remember because like Hannah was giving out like, you know, she's a feisty little Italian. She's like yelling out directions for who's in charge of what for Thanksgiving. And I kind of picked that as my moment to just bail because, you know, I wasn't like part of their travel family yet. And Thanksgiving seems a little bit sacred. So I was like, I'll give you guys this time and, and this this event, this night. And I, used, I took it as my cue to just bail. So I gave everybody goodbye hugs and I got on my scooter and I ripped back up the island and I checked into a hostel and I fell asleep, you know, I fell asleep like worrying like, oh man, I fucked that up, didn't I? You know, I didn't know like 
how much who knew what and what like what sort of impression I ended up leaving in the end, you know. But I was like, oh, I think you know, I think like most of the people I met in the group really liked me. Like I got on great with them, and I, I know Hannah and Trish, you know, and I had a good vibe. And Hannah had told me like you'll find out in like a day or two after this weekend. Like I think you know, I think it's going to go your way or whatever. You know, like gave me this good feeling, and no email. Like, you know, I leave the island. I, I, I send them thank you notes. Like, thanks again for the interview. It was such a great time. I love meeting everybody. I love the program. I'm still very interested in the job and hear nothing back. And I'm like, you know, checking my email, like every hour, just like anxious thoughts cycling through my mind. Like, man, I fucked this up. This is like the dream job. Like this, I need this. Otherwise I go home and have to admit to my dad and my family that like, yeah, all this travel led to me like coming back home and, you know, taking, you know, a career path that like maybe I wasn't so excited about. So I'm constantly, constantly, constantly refreshing my email and it takes like two weeks till I find out. But I mean, as, as we all know now, I, I ended up getting the job and that story, I guess I'll leave for the book if, if you end up reading the memoir, but it was like a, a really funny night and a funny story where I finally found out like, uh, like the dream came true and, and I got the job. And, you know, I remember like a year later telling Trish, like the full story of that full moon party night i was like did you know that this is what actually went down that night like probably not because you guys gave me the job but like you know it, it all worked out it all worked out for everybody like in the end i think you know i was like a really great program leader for remote year and did, and did a great job with that third group for remote year called R.Y. Cousteau and still close with a lot of those people and you know ended up in the role of director of community development after that and like you know i had like a long career with I want to take just one minute out to let you know that in addition to hosting The Maverick Show, I am also the co-founder of Maverick Investor Group, a real estate brokerage that helps you buy turnkey rental properties in the best U.S. real estate markets from anywhere. So these are single family homes sometimes two to four unit properties, and they're either brand new or fully renovated, and they already have tenants and local property management in place. So you get all the benefits of owning the deeded real estate, that physical house, the hard asset, without the headaches of being the landlord or the rehabber or needing to live near the property. So I want to offer you a free consultation if that sounds interesting to you. To learn more about it, you can just go to themaverickshow.com slash consult. And now, back to the episode. Remember, I had like one of the longest careers of anybody that worked for that company. So they were probably glad they hired me in the end. You know, <laughs> like it all worked out, but yeah. You, sir, are a remote year legend for sure. I want to get your take now on the remote year experience for you. I have interviewed a number of people on this podcast that have done remote year as participants. And I interviewed Greg Kaplan, the co-founder of remote year, but I've never interviewed a remote year program lead. And one of the things I will say is that the program leads, uh, can you talk a little bit, because they are some of the most extraordinary people that I've ever met, and they have extremely unique skills and qualifications. And I'm wondering if you can just talk about what the actual position was. What did you get hired for? What did you then have to go and do? And for just for people that don't know about Remote Year, and how was that experience for you as a program lead? It was wild. We're mostly ENFPs. I've realized that from knowing a little bit about Myers-Briggs, but ENFPs out there, all my people were, were set up, were, were made for this kind of thing. But yeah, it was really intense. And I, I remember the time, like really being kind of explicitly told like, hey man, there's no playbook for this. Like th the gig is 
you take 70 people, you travel around the world one month at a time. We'll tell you where to go and we'll set up your, you know, apartments and whatnot. But like, take them around the world one month at a time, make a close community, try not to make people leave, make it the best choice anybody's ever made in their lives. Like, just make it good. Like, good luck, you know, slap on the back, go for it. And like, that was kind of the early days. Okay. You know, there's like absolutely no pleasure for this. Like eventually like people like Jason, who I mentioned earlier and Trish and myself and, you know, some of the early team members, we like kind of helped to make a playbook, you know, like there was like things that we'd be like, as a program leader, do these things, like do these four things a month or whatever it was, like do positive impact, do a connect event. Right. But like early days, it was like, make it good. Like try not to make people quit. And yeah, like have fun. You know? <laughs> like, and it was definitely like the most I've ever poured myself into a job. You know, I'd just come off the tail end of four years of sort of like solo traveling where I like worked, you know, like I worked in Australia. I did a bunch of volunteer gigs, but this was my first, like something I would put on my resume, right? It was like, I was trying to re-enter the professional world and like do this job and do it really well. So I had one day, I remember in Serbia, we had a month in Serbia as Cousteau in Belgrade. And like, it was just one of those days. It was like such a quintessential program leader day where like, I woke up at like 8am to like do something. And, you know, it was like 20 things throughout the day that was like, coordinate this, talk to this local person about this thing where they're going to come be a guest speaker next week at lunch and then go play, you know, pick a basketball with your community with a bunch of Serbian guys you met and then go to this, you know, like go to this story slam event that you organized that night. And I remember later that day, like writing down each thing I'd done that day. And I was like, this is like sums up the, the program leader role. There's really no way to describe it. It's just like do the most like all day long. And ultimately you're like somewhat responsible for 70 really unique people's like emotional, physical well-being, like how they're feeling it, like on a day-to-day basis and making sure that they're enjoying the experience and that they feel connected to the community. And because obviously like that's the, that's the main value add of remote year for me. It's like anybody can travel, but doing it in a group of, you know, 30, 40, 50, 60 people is a really amazing, life-changing grounding experience will, that will alter you forever. It's like you, you have a travel family now and how people fit into those families and like the dynamics there obviously it's like a massive social experiment. It can get like super sticky and like people can feel like not seen, not understood, misunderstood, everything. Right. So it's a whole gamut. And I remember like your group met like Libertatum, let's say when we first met, it's like, I was going to see Libertatum because at that point I'd finished with Gusteau and your guys community was having like a bit of a down moment. And they were like, try to go and hang out with that group and make them happy again. You know, like it was like this weird like time and earlier. They were like, that's your new job. Like go make groups that are sad, happy. And I was like, I guess I can try. Like, let's go to Mexico City and see what it is. You know, like try to meet these people and, and like turn the energy around. Because obviously like, group think is a thing. Like the, the vibe is a thing. Like momentum is a thing. And Libertatum had a very strong like downward momentum. And it was a really like interesting, unique opportunity to be like, go meet these people. And like Libertatum is still to my day, like to, to this day, like one of my favorite groups I've met, like one of the more diverse groups remote years ever had, one of the more interesting groups. It's like such strong, charismatic personalities in that group. So like, what a cool opportunity to like go there, meet this group and try to make them like fall back in love with each other and fall back in love with this program and fall back in love with like traveling as a community. And ultimately, I think I helped a bit, you know, your, your two program leader, leaders, uh, Westy and Al did most of the heavy lifting and so did you and other like strong community personalities. But like, yeah, like at that time, remote year really was just like way more of like an experiment that I think where we got to at the end of our four plus year run, like such a fun thing. Like when we talk about like the fun side of like startup world, like you cannot picture or imagine a more fun version of like startup world. It's like, we're doing travel, we're doing like community, we're doing life changing things for people, and like, yeah, it can go 
any which direction. It can go south, it can go, it can go good, it can go however it, it might go for individuals. But like, we really, I think, you know, did it with like, you know, clear eyes, full heart vibes. Like we were trying our best and it, it was fun. It was a really fun time to, to work for that company. Yeah, man. It, it was definitely the best year of my entire life. My, awesome. the year that I did remote year, like hands down, no question about it. It was an extraordinary experience. And I want to actually build on and ask you a question about what you were just talking about, which is that I, I said at the beginning of this, that I find the program lead uh, people, the the people that fill that position to be really uniquely extraordinary humans with an incredible skill set. Like I've just been blown away by a number of people that I've met that have filled that position. And then you specifically were then hired out of that, out of all of these amazing people, you were then hired to, to play the role that you mentioned, which was in, uh, you know, over the course of the year, of course, there's going to be drama and downswings and uh, group yeah. implosions of different kinds and stuff like that. And you were actually selected and hired by Remote Year specifically to go into those situations. Like when our group was having our most challenging moment of the entire year, which was about halfway through our trip, about six months yeah. into it. And our group was having this internal implosion. They let, they're like, send in Travis King. It was like, send in the wolf. <laughs> I mean, it was yeah. like, Travis is coming. And yeah. so, and, and you were the person that they thought had the skills and the talent at such a high level that they would have you attend to the most difficult, the most challenging situations, group after group after group as they would arise. And I want to just ask you if you can just share a little bit just from your skill set in terms of you know community building group facilitation what is it that you do and how do you do it so well yeah and it was like one of those tasks that is kind of heavy and you feel like okay this is a big job to go and try to help with such an important thing and i think early on in remote year too i'd carved out this space of, I, I was like a community development expert. I had a minor in leadership studies in undergrad, worked in community spaces. I ran a group home in New Orleans for two years. Um, that's what I was doing there. This sort of little family that I created with high school kids that really needed some, you know, positive support and whatnot. So I'd experience and I kind of just elbowed my space out in the early remote year days. This is the thing I'm good at. Let me try. And it was all trial by fire in terms of like the remote year communities of just like what works and a couple of things I was to say is lead by example is the number one thing I always say to anybody who's entering into a leadership role. If you run a bar, clean your toilets. All your employees will clean the shit out of those toilets if you clean them once a week as well. And just do the things that you're asking everybody else under you to do. Do those things. Do, do them better than the people that you're hoping to employ to do those things, same things. Like do them the best and do them, do them with a smile on your face, even if it's cleaning a toilet, right? So lead by example is like the number one thing because people take after who they're meant to, who, who they're told to look toward. All right, th this guy is running your community. And so I just kind of knew early on, if I just embody everything I want my community to be to the best of my ability, hopefully they'll, they'll follow suit. And I think that was one of my definite things that I did well with Cousteau is I just tried to show up and be the best community member I could be every day. and just hope that people caught that. Okay, that's, that's something we can, you know, try to do ourselves. We can try to emulate that. And then with group dynamics as a whole, I'd say another, another important thing is just to, is just to, 
ask people how they feel to over-communicate. One of the sessions I actually remember doing with Libertatum with your guys' group was doing post-it notes on a wall. We, we created like a spectrum, zero to 10 on a wall. And I had like, you know, a group in the room, like 20 some people like, all right, write down on this purple post-it note from a scale of zero to 10. How do you feel about inclusivity in this community? Everybody can rate, rate their own zero through 10 and then go put it up on the spectrum. And then how does everybody feel about the level of respect in this community, zero through 10? How does everybody feel about the vibe, like the, the connectedness of the community, zero through 10? And I remember doing that with Libertatum first. And then I, I did that like same activity with a bunch of other groups. But I remember just seeing people in the community feel confused about the clear evidence on the wall in front of them in the form of individual post-it notes that were put up. Oh, like I thought we had a pretty inclusive community, but apparently like we average out at around like a four out of 10. So maybe the majority of these people in this room actually don't feel included. And maybe we should try it better as a group to make sure that everybody here feels included. Everybody, everybody here feels a part of this. And those sort of moments of just really trying to opening people's eyes to the way that everybody else in the group feels. I always felt like powerful moments of change in those situations. The way you see things, it's really easy for anybody to just put that on everybody else. Like the way that I feel about this, the way that I see this, I imagine everybody else feels similar, you know, to me, right? Like that's a really normal thought to have. But then when you create moments and activities like that to be like, let's actually see how everybody feels. You, you just have to be enlightened. Oh, everybody actually doesn't feel the same way I do. They feel differently. What can we do as a group to like make sure everybody feels at least seen and welcomed and, and included here and, and respected here. And all those most important things about a community, right? You can be yourself. You can voice your opinion. You can, we want you to share your gifts. We want you to share your talents. When you can get a community to feel that way and they, everybody feels like, hey, we love you warts and all. Like we love each other. We are here for each other. We got each other's backs. Then you see some really, really magical, amazing stuff happen. And seeing those transitions, seeing those shifts in community dynamics that's what made me really fall in love with the idea of group travel and fall even further in love with the idea of just community in general. I think it's a, a tribal ancient need that we've sort of forgotten. We're, we're in this world now where everybody has their own lawnmower. We don't need our own lawnmowers. What are we doing? So like, I think getting back to that sort of ancient root of we grew up in community, we grew up in tribes as, as a species. We've kind of lost that. We all put fences up and gave ourselves all our own little apartments. That's you know, nice in some ways. It's, it's a comfort in some ways. If you've lost the connection to the people around you, then you can feel a bit lost. And that's something that I think a lot of people like in our generation have, have kind of lost track of how important that is to everybody's happiness. You know, it's, it's essential to feel connected. It's essential. Yeah, man, totally. And you do an amazing job. I mean, like anytime I hear Travis King is is running a, you know, some kind of opportunity that I'm, I'm going to go and be a part of it. I mean, when we were in Bali together just last year, you know, can you talk a little bit about the family dinners and yeah. what those were? And, you know, when we would go, you would facilitate the conversation at dinner and share a little bit about that. I mean, it was totally amazing because we also had a bunch of people there that hadn't done remote year and they were just, you know, kind of uh, t tangentially connected through whatever they found their way and you invited them. And, and that was just a, a completely transformative experience for people in terms of just bonding and connecting. Can you share a little bit about that? Yeah, I think family dinner, well, to backtrack a little bit, Bali was one of our nation houses, which was what we just called events when we were trying to do, you know, get people together from the remote your community in cities and in countries that we didn't have kind of like a remote your hub. So we would rent out a place for a month or whatever and fill it. People could decide how long they wanted to stay. And one of the, one of the main key 
parts of those experiences for me, at least, was we would run family dinner every Monday or Tuesday night, right? So we usually get really good turnout. People show up, somebody cooks, or we order out. And once you got the food there and everybody there, it's just a magical setting for people to really connect. One of the things that I'm like sure about with adults and facilitation is that like, if you ask a room full of adults, like, hey, do you guys want to do this team builder? Everybody's going to be like, shut the fuck up. And they're just going to roll their eyes and be like, no, no, we don't. We don't want to do your dumb icebreaker, Mr. Camp Counselor. But if you just like introduce something and kind of make it like low key and more chill and like a little bit like, oh, less campy. Like I, I, I actually hate when there's facilitators who are like, now, like say the first letter of your name and like do a dance move. I'm like, no, I'm not doing this, bro. I'm 36, right? I think there are ways to do team building and ice breaking that are really organic and feel nice, right? So the one, the one main one that I would do at these family dinners that I think you're like remembering and referencing is the toast game, which is basically just like an organic sort of feeling conversation starter where you pick a topic. So it'd be like, all right, the toast game topic is favorite place you've ever been in the world, ready, go. And then like everybody makes a quick like one minute toast to like their favorite place in the world and you go around a circle and that game can go on forever. Like the next round you can do, all right, who's the person that you're thinking about right now that you know would like love to be here, that you love, that you know we don't really know. And then all of a sudden you're like, okay, I know about like this person. Like I remember there was a toast game where you went into your whole background as a DJ and your career doing proms and bar mitzvahs or whatever, like as a DJ. I was like, that's such cool stuff to know. It's not something that you're just going to tink your glass and interrupt people and be like, hey, I used to be a DJ. You know, nobody's going to do that. You need to give invitations to people to tell their best stories. And the toast game is just one of those really simple ways to be like, hey, everybody share something about your favorite family member. And all of a sudden you let 15 minutes pass and you let eight people in a circle share about their favorite family member. That group of people has no choice but to feel closer. You know, like you're just, you're just tightened, you're sucked in. Like you're like, okay, like these are my people. I love these fucking people. So I, I do really love to create spaces for those kind of conversations. I think, you know, like you think about how many hours we've all spent in like a noisy bar, just like shouting things at each other that we'll never remember, never remember, like no chance. But if you create that environment, like, hey, guys, let's do this thing. Let's let's play the toast game. All right, let's pick a, you know, let's pick a topic. What's what's the book that's changed your life the most, right? And then you listen to 80 of your friends share like the book that changed your life the most. You can't help but to feel a little bit more connected to those people. And you probably learn something. There's probably things that were said that you'll remember for weeks, months, years, right? But we don't really invite those moments enough, I think. So that, that's why I love those family dinners. Just like create a time and, and like a sacred little moment to just be like, let me know about you. Let me, let, let's go a little deeper. You're invited to share. That's awesome, man. The other thing that you are widely associated with that people know you for is fitness and exercise <laughs> regimens and organizing sure. things, not just for yourself. I mean, you're a super fit dude, but like also for other people. Can you talk a little bit about I mean, in general, what fitness means to you, but also in the context of itinerant travel, how you stay fit, and then what you organize for other people. Yeah. So I come from a family, like my, my genetics are not great in terms of fitness. Like I have an uncle who's had two gastric bypass surgeries and I could easily like, if, especially like if I let go for a month, like the month that I was on a fishing boat in Alaska, I put on like 25 pounds, like just without even thinking about my health, I'll put on 20 pounds. So I am the kind of person like just my DNA, my genetics make it so that like I have to work out every day if I want to keep myself feeling good about myself and keep myself in shape in, in any sort of reasonable way, right? So I, I do something every day. That's sort of my goal. Like today I ran, you know, for 45 minutes, not, not too crazy. The main thing that I do though that I invite people to is like a park workout more or less. I call it Kravis Ting. 
you can probably figure out how I named it that with my name, with my name being Travis King, <laughs> just flip those little letters around Travis Ting. But yeah, the Travis Ting workout got kind of famous in the remote year world. It's basically just a series of pull-ups and push-ups where you do like this type of pull-up and this type of push-up and this type of pull-up and this type of push-up for like 45 minutes until you feel like you might want to puke. And it's the main thing I've done to stay in shape for at least eight or nine years. It's sort of based off of P90X for anybody that's done P90X. It's like the first day of P90X is a lot of pull-ups and push-ups. So I just took that model and I made it so like you don't need any weights. You don't need any bands. You don't need anything. You just need like a bar above your head and the ground that you can do push-ups on. I very much so feel that thing with fitness where like if I stop doing it or if I, if I even take a three or four days off, I feel myself being like a crankier, worse version of myself. So I, I'm pretty happy that I have those like built-in uh, like motivators where like it's like I, I want to be the best version of myself. So I'm clearly going to have to work out today. If I want to be productive, if I want to be happy, if I want to be a good partner to Maria, if I want to be like my best version of myself, then got to go work out. And I like to try to help other people feel that, you know, like I've had tons of friends or people in remote who are like, Oh, I wish I was like you where I like working out. And I'm always like, Hey, listen, like I don't like doing a hundred pull-ups. It's not like it's fun. Like it feels good to do later. Like I'm really glad I did it and I feel accomplished, but it's not like doing a hundred pull-ups is fun. It's fucking hard. It's really hard. But the feeling of knowing that you're taking care of yourself, you know, we have one life vessel. So I just, I'm very clear in my own mind now, take care of yourself. And I, I used to like, you know, in certain other jobs I've had, I would prioritize the job or prioritize whatever else was going on in my life, school, like when I was in grad school, there, there's been time in my life where I didn't prioritize it. But to me now, it's like, if I'm going to do one thing tomorrow, it's going to be somewhere between a 45 minute and a one hour long yoga session. Cause that's my workout plan for tomorrow. And that's going to be like the number one thing I have to get done. And then everything else follows, like the book I'm trying to write, the remote work consultancy that Jason and I run, everything else, the, the projects for El Portecito and, and Puerto Escondido, everything else falls behind taking care of my body. It's like, it's, this is the one life vessel that I have until I die. So I've just chosen to make it first priority. Like it's number one. So I don't know, that I guess would be my advice to people is like shift your mentality of like, make it more important than work. Don't tell yourself that other people think it's fun and you're just this person that doesn't think it's fun. Nobody thinks it's fun. Doing 400 push-ups and 100 pull-ups is not fun, but I just make myself do it twice a week because I know it will make me a better version of myself in the future and you have to look out for a future you. That's awesome, man. So I know you have continued to have absolutely epic travel adventures and I want to ask you about one more that that I know you've done, which I have not yet done. So I want to get your take on it. You have done the rickshaw run (laughs) through India. I want you to explain for people that have never heard of this. What is it? And then can you share your experience? Oh man. Yeah. Shout out to Jerry and Will Ferg my rickshaw run partners, but it's, it's amazing. It's, it's through a company called The Adventurists. They're one of my favorite kind of smaller travel companies out there because their whole thing is we're going to force you to be uncomfortable. One of their only rules is they have a WhatsApp chat for everybody on the race. And they're like, if you ask for help, we're just going to remove you from the WhatsApp chat. You know, so they're like very hardcore. This is meant to be uncomfortable. And when you are uncomfortable, talk to a local. But the whole vibe around the rickshaw run is like, you, you get a rickshaw for us. Our route was in the Northwest of India, you get a rickshaw, which is like, like a lawnmower engine you pull the prop and it, it like turns this single stroke engine on. It's a three-seater. So like there's one person driving in the front and two, two people behind. So we were a team of three. You load all of your gear up on the top of the rickshaw and tarp it down in case it rains. And then basically the whole thing is like you start here and here's the finish point. And the finish point was in Bangalore, the far south point of India. 
And I remember we did some pre-calls, me, Jerry, and Will, about how this was going to go down. And we looked it up on a map. It's basically from Boston to New Orleans is the length of this drive. But we're doing it in this little rickshaw. And India is famous for having you know, cows on the highway. They just have like way more respect for cows there basically. So they like, don't, you know, mess with their lives. And there's cows like all over the streets and we're in this little tiny three person rickshaw. And every day we didn't even know where we were staying that night. You just drive as far as you can, try to find a place to stay, try to feed yourself, try to not get sick, you know, with the famous deli belly and just try to make it to the finish line. And you have two weeks and, like ready to go. You know, like that, that was sort of the vibe of the rickshaw run. And it was amazing. Like what, like one of my favorite travel experiences I've ever had, and I love the adventurists for what they do. They have a few other races that are kind of similar. Like there's one in traditional African fishing boats where you go down like the coast of East Africa and, you know, the rickshaw runs with the, the Mongol race through Mongolia, which is like in little cars is like another one of their races. That's like also really well known, but they do a really cool job of just putting people in their growth zone. Like you're just, you're going to be uncomfortable. So have a fun two weeks being uncomfortable. But by the end of this two weeks, you'll probably be a version of yourself that's improved and you're going to be proud of that you got through this crazy experience, you know? So some of my favorite travel memories were on that two-week trip of just, you know, you don't know what to expect from every day, what to expect from every, you know, random road you take in the countryside of India. Like, what a fun time. What a, what a good two weeks. That's amazing, man. So let's talk a little bit more about this book. It's called Not That Anyone Asked, a travel memoir about sex, drugs, love, and finding purpose. Can you share a little bit, first of all, about what the title means and how you chose it, and then also what people can expect from the book and why you chose to write it now? Yeah. So, I mean, I, I started writing it about three years ago. I'd always thought, you know, I always had like the friends who were like, when are you going to write a book about your travels? You know, and I was like, what? Should I? That was you know, my first reaction. And then eventually it got a little more serious. And eventually I started telling people that I was going to write a book. I think I just had like traveled enough and, and I wanted to write about it. And at some point just kind of committed, yeah, I should do something. I never really had dreams of getting found by a publisher. And I just, I would tell people like, even if this is just for my future non-real grandchildren to know how cool Grandpa Travis was, like that, that's reason enough for me to write it, right? So that, that was some of the motivation early on of just like, get it, get it into words and write it down before you forget it because... Even if it's just for you and your and your non-existent grandkids, like just do it for that. And with the title, yeah, I mean, I had so many different ideas about the title, but I ultimately went with not that anyone asked. I think it fits like the vibe of the book because it is just meant to be like, yeah, not that anyone, like like a bunch of fun stories that you didn't ask for, but that hopefully are more than just fun stories and they add up together to be message driven about the world. I think I don't know, I have to go on a tangent, but like. The world that the baby boomers created for us in the U.S. is like not something that I love. So I, I, I really have been like th- fighting with myself, but like why am I trying to seek their approval so bad and make choices that they're proud of when like I don't even really like how they ended up. And the U.S. is not a place that I feel like, oh, what a cool, great, wonderful place right now. Like it feels like the most divisive, like toxic, just like like kind of nasty vibe. And so like, why are we all the people in our generation, I'm 36, like in people younger people, why are we all chasing this like blueprint that the, the baby boomer Jason, baby boomer generation laid out for us? Like they don't even seem happy and they didn't end up creating a culture and a society that seems happy either. So why am I chasing their approval so badly? You know, so like that was part of both the travels, but then also writing about it. Like I was really committed in my mind early on in writing, like I just going to have to be honest. Like I'm gonna have to tell every story about drugs and sex and every thing that would be really hard to say to my dad's face. I'm going to have to write it in this book and then hand him the book and say, read this, you know, like, and he, so he knows that, like, I remember giving him a really early edition of the cocaine 
story and being like, uh, read this, like I made cocaine, you know, <laughs> like, and he was like, oh, oh, weird. Okay. You know, then he, he read it and handed me back my laptop and was like, this is a, a really good, you know, like you did a really good, like this is a really well-written, interesting story. Right. So I went through all of that, but ultimately I was just like, you know, I think I, I got to stop being so afraid of what that generation thinks of my choices. Cause like, fuck it. Like we all have one life to live, you know, back to like my mom passing, like we all have one life to live. So I'm going to live it on the edges and got to live it hard and, and maybe do things that buck the traditional way that like my parents' generation thought about what a good life is and what success looks like and what, what, you know, your true purpose should be or whatever. So I, I don't know. That was a lot of the motivation too behind just like deciding to do it and deciding to do it as honest as possible. And then with the name, yeah, I just think, you know, there's like a subtle joke in there that I think a lot of people who haven't traveled won't get, but the people who have traveled probably will infer, which is that like when I get home and see my best boys that I grew up with, they're still my best friends, but it's not like they ask me about me. They, they're like, let's talk about the green bear. Right. And I'm like, yeah, right. let's, let's talk about our wide receiver depth. It's, it's an issue. That, that, so we go right back into that. Like I could have been in like 15 countries, had the weirdest fucking time. And as soon as I'm back in Wisconsin, we're just taking shots of whiskey and talking about, you know, the green Bay Packers and what, what, you know, we, we obviously get into it a little bit, like where you've been, what's going on. But like, it is hard. It's just it's in the exact same way that it's hard for me to relate being a father of a one-year-old. Like a lot of my friends, you know, are, are going through that. It's like their major life thing right now. It's, it's hard for me to ask the right questions and to really get deep into like, what does that feel like? What does that, what does that mean for you? Like, how has it changed you? What, what's the, what's the whole scoop? Like, tell me, I'm, I love you. Fill me in. You know, it's hard for me to get into that conversation in the exact same way that I think it's hard for them to be like, yo, what was Bolivia like? What was Myanmar like? What was India like? I can give a story or two and, and, you know, give some anecdote about how I made my own cocaine and people are like, that's fucking crazy. <laughs> it doesn't really get to the, you know, it doesn't get to the, to the bottom of the, it doesn't get to the bottom of it. Right. So I wanted to write a book that kind of like tried to really get to the bottom of that. Like, like this is what it felt like for me to have nobody want me to travel, but to just fucking want to do it. And to like not make every choice for my resume, but make a choice for my life and just fucking do it. And then like that first choice led me to four years of just like, adventure and growth and and learning you could not replace it you could not put a you know that was four years like most colleges are four years you could not put a price tag on this four years that i that i was lucky enough to go you know make for myself you know and i'm so glad i took the chance that's amazing and i know that you are also committing to donating a portion of the proceeds to four organizations. And I want you to be able to speak about those organizations and what they mean to you and why you chose to do that. Yeah, honestly, it felt kind of obvious like to, to do something like that, I guess, just because I'm a bit away in Mexico City now and looking back at you know my home country, I still have so much love for the US and I want things to go well for people there and I want there to be the meaningful changes we need. So it just, yeah, kind of an obvious choice. Try to have the book be contributing to the causes that I believe in. And the first two that I chose were as obvious as it gets for me because they're two organizations I used to work for. One was Boys Hope New Orleans, where I just mentioned, you know, like living in that house with a bunch of teenage boys. That organization was really great to work for. And I think they do amazing things for young kids. They have like, you know, a 99% college acceptance rate. And it's a bunch of kids that probably wouldn't have had that chance to go to college, right? But when they come into Boys Hope, they get to go to college and have an amazing future. So I love that organization and want to support them. The other is Our Next Generation, which is based out of Milwaukee. My two years of grad school, when I was back at Marquette, I worked at that neighborhood center every day. And it's in one of the, like, the quote-unquote tough parts of Milwaukee on the west side where, like, it is, like, you know, there's 
you see poverty on the streets, you see prostitution, like it's, it's a tough neighborhood, but like that neighborhood center specifically on next generation is just this beacon of hope and what, you know, what that neighborhood can achieve. And I really just love, I love that neighborhood center. I love that neighborhood. I love the kids that I worked with there. And I just think that that neighborhood center is doing a really specifically good thing for the West side of Milwaukee. And so I want to support them for the rest of my life. You know, like I, my dad donates to them because I've convinced him that if you're going to write a check to a charity, write it to this charity. Right. So I love that organization. And my two years there, I was so grateful that that was like the organization I got to work at throughout grad school. So I'll, I'll support them forever. And I hope, you know, I want my book to support them, I guess, in that way as well. And then the two other bigger sort of nationwide nonprofits that I wanted to support were Be a Hero. The guy that started Be a Hero wrote his own memoir. He had like a disease that was, he knew was going to end his life, you know, and he did a lot of things in the last few years of his life to make huge changes on like a nationwide scale. He took on senators that were going to vote against, you know, universal healthcare. And that, that's how he actually got famous. There's that famous uh, airplane video where he was like, he met a seat buddy, somebody he'd never known in his life. And they got on really well about politics and, you know, what he was doing. And then this senator, Jeff Flake, he was like the one senator on the fence. He happened to get on the plane and his seat buddy videotaped him like begging the senator to, to make the right vote and to vote on behalf of universal health care for all Americans. And he was like, listen, I'm dying. Like there's a lot of people dying. Fucking help us, you know? And that video went viral, basically it led to Obama's health care bill getting passed and a bunch of people getting health care. He was like one of the main dominoes in the whole in the whole process of the country getting better and like getting on the same page as every other major country in the world that has healthcare for their society. Like if you, if you don't consider that part of what makes a society a society, like I, I just don't really understand where you're coming from. So anyway, I love that guy. And then the movement for Black Lives Matter is just, I think, doing things that our country needs because it's been way too long. It's, just, it's like so overdue and, you know, going to be on that team probably till I die because it, it'll probably still feel like that by the time, you know, you and I are 60, 70, 80 years old. It'll probably still feel like it's not quite fair. Like the, the historical ledger hasn't balanced. So anything I can do to try to help balance that ledger, like it feels like an obvious thing to try to help with. And so let's try to make it actually the country that we all imagine it to be and want it to be, which is that there is equal opportunity for people and everybody has a chance to have a quality of life that we'd be proud of. You know, like all of my politics, everything I believe in, it's just around quality of life. Let's just lift the bar for the quality of life for all people in the country to the point where we feel proud as a country. I love that, man. So now when you reflect back on all of your travels, when you first left for the beginning of that four-year trip until now, what are your overall reflections on your personal growth and insights that you got through travel? Yeah, it's a great question. I don't know. I think more than anything, like my first gut reaction or like, you know, thing to think to say about that is that the U.S., we do a very good job of making, we're, we're, you know, we're number one and thinking we're number one, right? Like we, we do a really good job of, I don't want to say brainwashing, but you know, like encouraging every kid and everybody growing up in the country to think that there is not a better option. Think about where all the movies and the music and like the the Hollywood comes from. Where, where's your Apple phone come from? Like we are the best country, right? Like that that feels super ingrained into the the DNA of America. And when you start to travel, you realize that there's a lot of different versions of success and happiness. And that's kind of what I was chasing, I think, in travel in general. I didn't, I didn't want to just 
do what I was told I should do with the rest of my life, which is like, you know, follow these steps, go to school, get a job, maybe go back to school, which I did, grad school. Then after that, get a better job with your master's degree and then do that until you die, right? Like that, that was kind of the blueprint for success in America for me. And I just never felt like I wanted to chase that. I, I didn't, that didn't feel fulfilling. I could see like, man, like that's a pretty bummer of a future, not the most full version of a life I could, le- I could lead. And then when you start to travel, I saw just so many different versions of what success and happiness look like for people across the world. And it just made me feel like my future was full of infinite opportunities and possibilities and who knows what it's going to be full of. But that, that who knows part makes life so much more exciting. Like I, I don't feel stuck. You know, I don't feel like there's only like, you know, I got my degree in this. So like, uh, you know, I am an accountant, like, then I guess I have to be an accountant, right? Like I, I, I'm lucky to have avoided that pitfall, which I think is like a trap that America sort of set up for everybody, which is like, you got to go to higher education. If you want a real job, then you got to go into $60,000 worth of debt. Then you got to go be an accountant to pay off that $60,000 worth of debt. Like what a fucked up system. Right. And luckily like my master's degree was, uh, was a fellowship. So it was free and playing soccer in undergrad made that like four years free as well. So I was just like super lucky, like looking back so lucky to get two degrees in higher ed that like I didn't have to pay any money for and, or pay too much money for at least. And you know, but I wasn't in, I wasn't in deep debt. And like that allowed me to also feel the freedom to travel and to go try to have this, this adventure. And then the adventure itself made everything feel possible where like before that it was like, I don't know what else I'm good at. Like, I guess I'm just going to work with kids in the nonprofit sector. That was kind of the only thing I could see myself doing. But then after, you know, the first trip, after the second trip, after four years, it really felt like whatever I want to conceive of is possible. Like whatever I think I want to do, I I can try at least, like I I can see if it's possible. So that's where this like idea of doing a co-living, co-working on the beach in Mexico in Puerto Escondido, that's like, you know, when I think about it, that's where it came from. It came from feeling like, I can do whatever I want to do. There's no blueprint that I have to follow anymore. Like just do what you want. That's awesome. All right, Travis, at this point, are you ready to move in to the lightning round? Let's do it, man. Let's do it. Let's do it. The lightning round. All right. What is one book that has significantly impacted you over the years? You'd most recommend people check out. Can I do two real quick? One would be why we sleep which is just like a great research book about sleep. Since I read that book, I same thing I kind of said about health earlier. Like I prioritize sleep. Like I'll push back a meeting if I know I'm not going to sleep eight hours. Like I pretty much make sure that I sleep eight hours a night just because I've like been convinced by this book that it's so important for my health for like, you know, 10 different reasons, right? And maybe a more fun one would be Shantaram. If you're a traveler and you haven't read Shantaram, read Shantaram. It's a great book. So good. Awesome. What is one travel hack that you can recommend to people? I would say to any musician listening, get yourself a travel guitar or like a baby guitar. I've seen so many people like on flights with like a full size guitar. And I know that they had to pay like $75 to get that guitar on the plane. Where if you have like a baby guitar, like my, my guitar is only like three quarter size, but they, because it's a little smaller, they let me take it on the overhead compartment. And it's basically like my purse, right? It's like my extra item. So I think it's only Ryanair that's charged me in like the last four years for having my little guitar with me. And yeah, it's just been like, I think about how much money I've saved by just having this baby guitar, which still plays great and sounds great. So yeah, I would recommend a, a travel guitar to any, to any musicians out there. 
Awesome. Who is one person currently alive today that you've never met that you would most love to have dinner with? Just you and that person for an evening one-on-one conversation and dinner. Anderson Peck. I've always just felt like Anderson and Peck and I would be boys. And I, I love that dude's music. I think he's amazing. Yeah. All right, Travis, of all of the places that you have traveled, what are your top three favorite travel destinations you've ever been to you'd most recommend people check out? India, for sure. That rickshaw run, like India, amazing. Japan is just so Japanese and amazing. Like they're the only, like, you know, one of the only countries that's never been colonized or, or fucked with. So like they, they, they've been Japan since they've been Japan. And you, you can feel that when you're there. I'd love Japan. And third, I'll say Bolivia, just cause I think it's not rated. Like it should be rated, but like the salt flats, River and in the, in the Amazon there. And you know, like La Paz, what a, what a great city. Like, I mean, I, I love Bolivia. I agree. I think Bolivia is one of the most underrated countries in the world. And I have it super high on my recommendation list to travelers as well. That's an awesome pick. And the other ones are amazing too. I agree. That's, that's awesome. All right, Travis, what are your top three bucket list destinations? These are places you've never been that are the highest in your list. You most want to go. Antarctica, just because it's there. And like, I need to, I need to go there because it's there. <laughs> you know, like, I just feel like I've been like, this continent, that continent, and like it's its own continent. So I just want to go, you know, high five a penguin in Antarctica. That's one thing for sure. Other places that come to mind are Iceland, just because I've never been. And I feel like I've flown a plane near it or over it so many times. And I've had so many friends that have visited and I've seen, you know, seen the photos of the waterfalls and glaciers. And I, I want to go see it for myself. So that's on there too. And then this isn't a country, it's like an area, but more of Africa. Like I've done. Tanzania, I've been to South Africa a handful of times. I've been to Egypt. I've been to Morocco. So, you know, I've like touched around a lot of the edges of Africa, but I want to go do like a three month backpacking trip through Africa where I take like the local bus to connect from city to city. Like I, I've, I've had a trip like that in my mind for a long time. That's awesome, man. All right. The last question, Travis, which is also the most important question of the lightning round, I am yeah, going to ask you to name your top five hip hop MCs of all time. But before you do that, I want, I want to ask you to just sort of say a word about what hip hop music means to you, because I know music you've, you've talked about in general, music has been a huge part of your life, always has been a huge part of your travels. And one of the things that you and I have always connected on is hip hop music. So I would love to hear just for you personally, what does hip hop mean to you and why do you love that art form? Yeah, I, I've always loved it. Like, I, I remember loving it when I knew that, like, I probably shouldn't, or like, like nobody would have expected me to, right? Like, little white boy, thirteen in the suburbs, like dancing in the mirror in the bathroom, and just like knowing that I liked to dance and that hip hop music made me want to dance more than any other type of music in the world. And then, like, I, I got really into, I think I got really into hip hop in general when like the conscious hip hop movement started. So some of those top MCs I'd name would be Talib Kweli and Most Def. Definitely on my top five list. Those guys, you know, were kind of like my introduction to hip hop and yeah, made me fall in love with the art form. And also Black Thought. I would I, would, I think he's super underrated in, in the history of hip hop. You know, like he is the leader, like the MC leader for the Roots and like the Roots is the greatest hip hop band, I think of all time. That's pretty like understood, but like he does such a good job holding down the MC job for that band. And I just think he's very underrated. So I put him on my list, leaves me with two spots, and I'm going to give him to 
Biggie Notorious has to be on the list if if you're making sense, I guess. Like you, if, you, if you're actually trying to make a top five list, you have to give Biggie a spot. And I, I I'll sneak Eminem in there too. I just think he did so much for hip hop as like an art form and really like broadened what people thought of in terms of like who can be a dope MC and like what is like the cadence of this rhyme or whatever. Like he he just did a lot of different things that expanded the art form and like I think you know anybody's got to like give him that due. Like he he did so much for the art form and what a great MC. Awesome, brother. I love that. All right, Travis, I want you to let folks know how they can contact you, connect with you, follow you on social media, and definitely how they can get a copy of the book. For sure. So actually, you know, like the pre-order will probably be set up in the next couple of weeks. There's Instagram for the book, which is, you know, the name of the book is not that anyone asked. So the Instagram is NTAA underscore memoir. You can find that on Instagram. If you just Google search, not that anyone asked memoir, the Facebook page will probably show up. So there's a Facebook page. It's just, you know, like it's linked to the Instagram. And then I also have a brand new website called TravisWKing.com where I have a little bit like, you know, more about myself and my writing and the pre-order and everything about the book will be super obvious there, you know, in a couple of weeks. And basically if you follow any of those social accounts, like if you you follow the Instagram, NTAA underscore memoir, I'm going to make it abundantly obvious that this is how you pre-order, you know, this is when the book comes out and all those things. But uh, the the general idea is that the pre-order is ready to go by the start of October, you know, early to mid-October, and then the book comes out itself probably late November, early December. So that's kind of my timeline in my mind. And yeah, I'm really excited to get it out. I've been writing it for three years and, you know, wanted to just like be brave and tell the stories. Like I'm, I'm ready to get the stories out there. Well, I am super excited to get my copy, brother. I wanted to get you on the podcast as early as possible once I knew the book was done and uh, going into the publication process here so that folks could uh, hear about it, learn about it, and get on that pre-order list. So everything that you just mentioned, we're going to link all that up in the show notes. So folks can just go to one place at themaverickshow.com, go to the show notes for this episode, and you're going to find the links and the social media handles to everything that Travis just mentioned. And Travis, my man, thank you yeah, for coming right. on the show, brother. This was a blast. Yeah. So fun, man. Like you're, you're one of my favorite dudes, like the best energy. I, I wish we were in person doing this, but it's super fun to connect virtually and, and to get to have this chat with you, man. Like I, I definitely miss you and we got to connect sometime soon. I feel the same way, brother. This was awesome. All right. Good night, everybody. Be sure to visit the show notes page at themaverickshow.com for direct links to all the books, people, and resources mentioned in this episode. You'll find all that and much more at themaverickshow.com. Learn how Maverick Investor Group can help you buy cash-flowing rental properties in the best U.S. real estate markets, regardless of where you live. Schedule a free phone consult today at themaverickshow.com slash consult. Now you can buy rental properties with tenants and local property management in place so you don't have to be a landlord or a rehabber to get your questions answered and discuss how Maverick Investor Group can help you meet your real estate investing goals. Schedule your free phone consult today at themaverickshow.com forward slash consult. If you like podcasts, you will love audiobooks, and you can get your first one for free at themaverickshow.com slash audiobook. Whether you want the latest best-selling novels or books on investing, business, or travel, try your first audiobook for free at themaverickshow.com forward slash audiobook.